0: Well, good morning, church. It is so good to be with each and every one of you. My name is Tim Bedall, and I have the great privilege of serving as lead pastor here at Village Bible Church. And as a church, we find ourselves in a series that we've entitled, Jesus, the greatest of all time. That's why we sing songs that Jesus is the anthem of our heart. Because as we open his word, we see how great, how awesome, how marvelous this Jesus is, and we have picked a book for the entirety of this a school year, if you will, to look at a book written to first century Jewish believers who were wanting to give up and give in on Jesus. They had come to know and love the Jewish law and the patriarchs and the prophets, and while that was good and right for the people of Israel to do, It was always a preview of what God was going to do in the person and work of his son. That promise had been seen through the prophets. That promise had been told over and over again at each Passover feast, that there was one coming and he was going to be greater than all others and he was going to save us from our sins. But sadly, amidst all the circumstances of their lives, all of the pushback, of a culture that was against Christ in that day, these people were wanting to give in. And we have learned little by little, moment by moment in this letter, that Jesus is, in fact, the greatest of all time. And we will have a vibrant and healthy and robust walk with our Heavenly Father when we put Him above all else. Now, this letter has been a treatise, if you will, of Old Testament history and Old Testament religion and the Old uh, Testament mosaic law with all of its traditions and all of its rituals that came along with it. And these people were steeped into this religion. And Jesus was coming to fulfill that. In fact, he had Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he had made a fulfillment of the law and all of its requirements. And now the text tells us he makes intercession for us. He is our great high priest forever. He had taken care of the problem that we all had against us. On April 13th, 1970, a problem came to the surface it would be articulated to Johnson space control in Houston when Jim Lovell, the flight commander on Apollo 13, said words that have been immortalized. Houston, we have a problem. Now, I'm not being fair with it because the right words were, Houston, we've had a problem, but Tom Hanks changed that in the movie, Houston, we have a problem, and thus the discrepancy, that message would be asked to be relayed again. In fact, one of the flight uh, coordinators at NASA said, surely he didn't say there was a problem. One thing you don't say at NASA is you have a problem. And so he said, excuse me, can you repeat that? And Jim Swigert, the flight pilot, said the same words, Houston, we've had a problem. The problem, an explosion had taken place. Again, you don't like hearing the words explosion in space. They were on their way to land on the moon, to do what Americans had done just the summer beforehand, and that is to step foot on the moon. But that wouldn't happen. Now the great job of the people at NASA and these great uh, astronauts was to find their way home. You see, the writer today is telling us we have a problem. And for some, you may say, repeat that. I don't think I have a problem. I think my life is pretty well put together. But the writer is telling us that we've got a problem. And our problem is, is our inability as human beings, because of sin, to have a right relationship with God. And nothing we do, no amount of rituals, no amount of, of good deeds are going to get us where we need to be in our relationship with the Almighty. And our first response needs to be, we've got a problem. The greatest thing that you can ever do, the greatest acknowledgement you can ever have is, God, I have a problem. And the Bible says that when we utter those words, God is faithful and just to address our problem of sin and to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So in this middle section of Hebrews 7, we navigate difficult waters. That's why I'm so thankful for the last two weeks of Nick Gherkin and Bill Warner for, I don't even like the phrase filling in. They didn't fill in. They, they were in their rightful spot. Yeah, we should give them a hand for that. These are difficult texts and difficult things to deal with. I told you early on in this series that the book of Hebrews is the farthest from us in all of the books of the Bible because it addresses Old Testament Judaism, and it deals with it in a first century Jewish culture, and we are 21st century Christians of a Gentile culture. So there's a lot of translation and a lot of interpreting what does this have to do with them, first of all, and then in turn, what does this have to do with me? What the writer is going to say is the whole superstructure of the Jewish faith was not good enough to get people to God as God intended. Now, did it have its place? And yes, we're gonna talk about that it had its place and it had its purpose. But what the writer is gonna say is he is going to lay out reasons why the law wasn't good enough. Now, maybe you're not a part of the Mosaic law. Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. We'll, we'll help you with that in a moment. Maybe you think if I just do enough good deeds, then I'll be all right. Hey, I'm at church today. That should amount to something. This is the new set of laws. If I just do this and that, and and we've got all these lists of do's and don'ts, and we perform And we say, God, look at my performance. My performance is a really good performance. And so when I die and when I stand before you at the judgment, you're going to let me into heaven. You're going to forgive me of my iniquities, my wrongdoing because of all the good I've done. If you've come here today, you find yourself no different than the Jewish individuals of the book of Hebrews who built themselves and their spiritual well-being on a superstructure that wasn't good enough. Hebrews. We have a problem. Now, for generations, the law had led and guided and even in some ways forced the people of God to obey God. Because if you didn't obey God, there were consequences that were laid out in the law. So if you don't do this, this is what others are to do to you, or this is what God is going to do to you. So whether through obedience of, yes, Lord, I'll serve you and honor you in in that, with a spirit like that, or begrudgingly, God, I'll do it, obedience was key. You didn't have to like it. You didn't have to want it. You didn't have to delight in it. You just had to do it. Now, this law was broken up into three things. And this is very important because uh, contrarians to Christianity will say, you pick and choose the laws you like and you don't like. And there's a reason why we do that. It isn't because we pick and choose, but that there are three facets to the law. The first one was what we call the civil element or division of the law. Within the law of Moses, there were three different types of laws. First one, civil. You should write that down. That will help you to... Uh, understand where we're going. The civil law was a law that led the nation of Israel. Why? Because God was their king. God was their president. God was their constitution. God was their prime minister. God was whatever you wanted to call him. Some people said he was the dictator of the Israelite people. God was in charge. Whether you liked it or not, it was God's agenda and God's way. And so the law throughout the first five books of the Bible say, if you do this, citizens of God's kingdom, this is what's going to happen. And if this happens, the people, this is how you should respond. And this is where we get an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and all manner of things. This is where we see things like capital punishment and all of that. God established a law for his people. Now, why don't we adhere to those things now? Because God has said, I am no longer the king and ruler of a national people. What I have done is I have given Romans 13 government the job of being my hands and feet in the civil order of the, of a nation. And so God has given for a time a grace to us government to be led and guided by him, but to make their decisions and to make their laws. So there was the civil law. The second one was the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is where you get the high priest. It's where you get all of the festivals and festivities that would take place, things like Passover and the Feast of the Tabernacles and, and all that. This is where uh, how the temple would be built and all that was required of people with regards to Passover and, and the different uh, sacrifices and offerings they were to give. All of this was in the law as well. And this was to help people, to order people, to remind people of a couple truths. Number one, you're all sinners. Number two, God is holy. And number three, sinful man and holy God can't meet together. So there was this whole set, and you're going to be seeing this in your small group studies, this whole process of creating separation between God and man, and every once in a while, On a very important day, the day of the atonement, a middleman would be brought into it, and it was all ordered through the Old Testament. This middleman would go into the Holy of Holies on our behalf, and he would make sacrifice for himself and then make sacrifice for our sins. And in doing so, we would know God isn't going to destroy us, and we're at a good place with God. Now that is no longer needed. The civil law is no longer needed. We have government, and we have uh, the ability to uh, make laws as, as the government does. Civil law, uh, ceremonial law, every day. Because of Jesus Christ, you and I can go into the Holy of Holies. We don't need a priest. We don't need festivals. Why? Because every day is the Feast of Tabernacles. Every day is the uh, Feast of Passover. Why? Because Jesus Christ once and for all has done it, and we live not to continually make sacrifices. We don't go to Jewel and Aldi and get a, a lamb through the meat department and put it on an altar each and every day. Why? Because the Bible says in the book of Romans, we place our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord each and every day. So we don't need a ceremonial law. Christ has fulfilled all the ceremonial law because now we have unfettered access To our God in heaven. That is why the symbolism of the curtain that separated us from the Holy of Holies was torn down at the moment of Christ's death on the cross. Civil, ceremonial, finally, the moral. The moral. Now, this is one that still has bearing in our lives. Murder is still murder. Adultery is still adultery. Just because we're Gentiles, that doesn't change it. In fact, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, is says, listen, you know it's wrong to murder, but I'm going to up the ante. You think murder is bad. If you think wrongful, murderous thoughts about your brother, you've murdered already in your heart. Uh, yes, committing adultery with your body is wrong, but he says, I'm going to up the ante for followers of mine. If you were to look on a woman or a man in a, in a lustful way, you've already committed adultery in your heart, and there's a lot of them. And so what we will hear from contrarians is that we pick and choose. No, we see the Bible is totally consistent with regards to the civil and ceremonial that that was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. But the moral still stands today. And so those truths are important for us to know and understand. Here's the problem. An individual in the Old Testament would say, I've got the civil law down. I'm not breaking the laws. God's my leader. I'm not breaking the laws. I'm not rebelling against him. Okay, that's one. I- I'm not uh, doing anything contrary to the c- ceremonial law. Every time the priests say to come and make sacrifices, to give offerings, I do so. So I got that one down. And the moral law, listen, I've stayed faithful to my wife. I haven't killed any of the people around me. I'm good. Check box one, check box two, check box three, I'm all set. Yes, you have in many ways adhered to the law, but something's wrong. The problem is the law in and of itself was never, listen to me very carefully, destined to save anyone. And so the writer is going to now spell out why that is the case, and he's going to focus in on this role of high priest and why Jesus needed to be a different high priest to be able to enable us to have what we were looking for. So notice, what's our problem? You're like, okay, Tim, you said there was a problem. What's the problem? Notice verse 11 of chapter 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now go back, to, go down to verse 19. For the law made nothing. Help me out. Perfect. Okay. So twice, the author says, what our problem is. Our problem is we need perfection. We need to be perfect in order to have a right relationship with God. God created Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden, and without sin, they were perfect. And in that relationship, they had unfettered access to God. They walked with God and talked with God and lived life with God. But when they sinned, when they rebelled, they lost their perfection. And in doing so, they lost their ability to interact with God as God had purposed for them to do. And not just them, but all of us, because in, in Adam, all men sinned. And women, by the way, as well. And so we've got a problem, we're not perfect, and we're trying to interact with, we're trying to uh, be on the good side of a perfect God. And we can't do it. And what he has just said is the law won't enable you to do it either because the law has made no one perfect. Now right away what the writer has done is he has done the unspeakable. It is like a a Bears fan at the Packers game tonight, right? Or last night. They already played and they won. Boo. Okay. Okay. Imagine at a Packers game, there's a Bears fan. And man, anything he says, they're not going to want to hear. The Hebrews want nothing to hear from a guy who says that the law doesn't get the job done. The law was everything to the Jewish people. And for the last seven chapters... He has said, instead, people, of looking to the law to make you perfect, you need to look to Jesus. You need to look to Jesus. And so what he says is, is if we're going to look to Jesus, why would we do that? The answer is, Jesus alone can take imperfect, sinful people and make them as white as snow. And as he does that, we now have what John Milton said in his classic, paradise lost and paradise regained. We have in Christ what we couldn't have because of sin. And so what this chapter, as difficult as this chapter is going to be for us to understand, is a treatise, is a, is a lecture, is a statement to say, what the law couldn't do, Jesus did, and let me prove the way. So let's get into the text. Chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, people received the law, what further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? We talked about that last week. Bill Warner led us into understanding why Jesus is greater And then the Levitical priesthood, because instead of being in the line of Aaron, he's in the line of Melchizedek. If you don't understand that, go to our website, villagebible.church, and click last week's message, because we're moving on, all right? It's a great message, so make sure you, you go and listen to it. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom things are spoken belong to another tribe for which no other has served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the legal basis uh, concerning bodily descent, but the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now let's stop there. What the author is saying is your old way of doing things doesn't work. Now let's explain why. He gives two words. He says, first of all, it's weak that it doesn't have the staying power, it doesn't have the stamina, it doesn't have the power to do what we need it to do. And then he uses the phrase, it's useless. Useless in the sense that it will not accomplish what we need it to, and that is to make us perfect and to bring us into a forever right standing with God. So therefore... If the law of Moses isn't going to do it, we need a different law, a different priest who would not only take care of sin for a short time, but we need a different priest who would remove sins permanently. He would permanently remove our sin. Now, right away, you say, okay, Tim, does that mean the law was bad? No, the law wasn't bad. But what we need to recognize is, is the law had its limitations. The best way to illustrate this is your phone. We, almost all of us, have phones. And we have seen, how many have seen the evolution of the phone in their lives? Raise your hand, old people. Okay, how many of you had that white brick phone? You were cool dudes, right? You were the cool ones who got to spend $4.99 a minute... To talk to people, okay? Yes, young people, you didn't have, well, you did have unlimited uh, minutes, it was going to cost you an unlimited amount of money, all right? Now, that phone was able to make calls. The cell phone you have in your pocket, because you don't have it in your hands because you're too busy listening to me, that cell phone you have in your hand still makes calls, right? But it does way more. The law covered sin. The law for a short time put you into a right relationship with God, but it would run out. Jesus is all that the law was and so much, infinitely more than that. Here's the crazy thing. I used the Apollo 13 space mission. They tell us the power and the computer uh, abilities that you have on your cell phone is more than what they had on Apollo 13, okay? Now we can text. Now we can message. Now we can do all manner of things. Have you noticed the cell phone that we have in our hands has taken away the need for so many other devices? When was the last time you were looking for a calculator, Right, remember those things, those little little screens that you used to type? You don't need those anymore. Why? There's an app for it. I was traveling just uh, uh, these last couple of weeks with my family and I remember growing up that everybody usually the dad or the mom had this big bulky camera hanging across their their neck. Why? Because if they wanted to grab pictures, they had to have this big bulky thing. Now we just pull out our phone, we take a picture, and it's done. Why? Because the phone now doesn't just make calls, but it does so much more. Hopefully that illustrates for you the one dimensional nature of the law compared to the multi nature of Jesus Christ. What Christ does is way beyond what we could ever ask for or imagine. And so the old way was useless. The old way didn't work. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, give up on that. It isn't getting you anywhere. It'd be like having that phone that we just had on the screen and trying to text somebody with it. Or trying to pull up Google Maps on it. You can't do it. It's useless in that way. It had a purpose, but that purpose has become in many ways obsolete. In fact, my two oldest sons have phones, And I don't think they ever call on it except when they're receiving a call from me. Like, why would I call? I can text, I can Snapchat, I can do all these things that my dad has no earthly idea about. And so it's bigger and greater. And so what do we need? We need a new way. And the writer says in verses 22 through 28 that the new way He's going to use a phrase, saves to the uttermost. Not saves for a time or for a season or covers certain sins. But Jesus in his work on the cross is going to save to the uttermost. It's got ability. It's got staying power. It's got all that's needed for us to be made perfect in the eyes of God. Now, how does it do that? Well, it needs a priest. It needs someone to mediate this new covenant. So notice verses 22 through the end of the chapter. This makes Jesus the guarantor. I'm sorry, I'm going to back up. And without this, none of this was done without an oath. Verse 20, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Jesus, are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. We'll get to that. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing the office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints Jesus' son who has been made perfect forever. In that passage, we see three reasons why Jesus fixes our problem. Why Jesus is better than trying to fix this problem on our own. First of all, notice how Jesus and the high priest of old were selected. Write this down. The first argument is a lineage argument. It's about lineage. It seems arbitrary, but you became a high priest because your old man was a high priest. And so if dad was a high priest, you took on the family business. The problem was just because dad was good at being a high priest didn't mean you were going to be a high priest. And it goes back to the beginning. Aaron had two sons, Nadab and Abihu. And they were given the job of being priests of the Most High God. And they failed at it. When they were within the Holy of Holies, they sacrificed and gave unauthorized, what the Scripture says, fire. They played games with God. And God struck them dead. Just because dad's a faithful high priest doesn't mean the sons are gonna be a faithful high priest. Fast forward into the latter times of the New Testament after Moses and Aaron and we get to the time of Eli, the high priest. And Eli, wonderful man, served the Lord, great mentor of Samuel, another great priest of the people of God. And you would see the soap opera that was going on in Eli's life, not because of his life, but because of the sins of his rebellious sons. And like you, you can't make them priests. They're rebellious children. And so one of the problems was, is your lineage really messed things up. Now it was the way that God had planned it, but man's hardening Hearts, sinful hearts, took that which should have been good. A father sharing the, the family business of being a priest and the fear and admonition of the Lord failed because of rebellious children and wayward fathers. But not so with Jesus. Notice he's called a son in the last verse. He appointed his son, Jesus, but go up a little bit. And notice what he says about Jesus in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. We need a high priest. Don't walk away from here thinking, I don't need a high priest. You need a go-between between sinful you and God. And notice what Jesus was. He was a high priest. He was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus not only said, well, my dad is God. He said, I have fulfilled the moral and spiritual requirement to be the go-between, to be the only mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Because he's holy, because he's my No other priest, not a single one from Aaron on could have ever said that. They were all sinful. So lineage, he crosses that off, says, I'm better than the ones that preceded me. Number two, how about their longevity in office? So we've got lineage, we've got longevity. Jesus is greater. Notice in verse 23, there were many priests in number. Why? Because people kept trading for a player to be named later? Because they didn't like him and voted him out? No, notice what it was. There were many because they were prevented from death from continuing in office. Everyone from Aaron, they all died. Some died young, some died old. Some served in that office for a really long time, others a very short amount of time. In fact, the Talmud, which is a list of uh, rabbinical writings regarding the law, said that there were more than 300 high priests from Aaron to about the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, 300. Now, here's the problem. And it says it within the text, when there is a high priest, notice verse 12, for when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now this is the best week to talk about this because we have a change in administration happening. Right now in Washington, D.C., besides tanks and soldiers and all of that, there are moving trucks. The previous administration, like all other previous administrations, are moving out. They're emptying their desks. And a new administration is going to come in. And, and, and whether you like it or not, we are going to suffer whiplash from one administration to another. And that's just the way of politics in America. Because with one administration comes policies, ideas, decisions, uh, priorities, and now a new Administration is going to come in with their priorities, their focal points, and and their ideas. And so uh, over the next course of days, we're going to see a lot of things change in our country. And here's the point. That doesn't happen with your Christianity. You see, when a new priest came into power, he would change the focus. He would change the plans in Old Testament Judaism. Maybe even a better way to talk about it is what we see in Roman Catholicism with the changing of popes. In fact, right now, we, it's been some five, 600 years since we ever had two popes live at the same time. But the two popes that are alive today couldn't be different in their ideologies, couldn't be different in their approaches to ministry, couldn't be different in their outlook for what the church is to do. One is incredibly traditional, the other is prog- incredibly progressive. And so you see within the Catholic church, well, well, wait a minute, why do we change? Well, Well, listen, this is why it's important. Because as Jewish followers of the law, you would be told in different nuancing words what God expected of you under a high priest. Now, i got to be honest with you. I want to know without no uncertain terms how I am in my relationship with God. But if a new administration comes in and says, hey, hold on, we're going to do something completely different. There's going to be new laws, new ideas, new plans. Well, now I'm just throwing my arms up going, well, everything changes. Well, Listen. Jesus is the high priest forever. The text tells us that he is in this forever verse 24. He is there permanently and he continues forever. Notice in verse uh, 21. He will not change his mind. And so when he says, bow the knee to me, make me your mediator between you and God, I will cleanse you, I will heal you, and I will make intercession for you. You don't have to worry about any more elections. You don't have to worry about any policy changes. It remains the same. What that means, and we'll talk about this in a moment, you can trust him. He's not going to die. He's not going to be deposed. Nothing is going to change. Jesus, in fact, the writer says is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because he's that, we can trust him. We can rely on him and we can, uh, give our all to him knowing that we don't have to worry about circumstances changing. So he's described in this way. Longevity, lineage. One more, his labor. Verse 27, the priest of old busied themselves making sacrifice to God. Now, they truly couldn't minister to people fully. And the reason why is because they were too busy doing a couple things. Number one, making sacrifices for their own sins. They would go into the Holy of Holies, and the first thing they would do is they would make sure they were right with God. They didn't talk about you. They didn't talk about me. They didn't go before our Lord and make intercession for us. They worried about themselves. It was very selfish, but they had to do it. They had to do it because they couldn't do anything for us until they dealt with themselves. Number two... Then they would go and they would make sacrifices and they were always busy in their time in the Holy of Holies. They never sat down because they were always busy making the sacrifice, making the sacrifice. Think of the millions of animals who were sacrificed year in and year out by the people of God, always getting back to square one. Not so with Jesus. Jesus, because he is, notice in the text, holy, innocent, unstained, And exalted above heaven, when he entered the Holy of Holies, it was all about you and me. He didn't have to stop and say, wait a minute, God, i got to get right with you. He was already right with God because he was perfect. And so he could focus entirely on you and my problems and issues that needed to be interceded on. Number two, because the text tells us that he made sacrifice once for all. Underline that in your text. There was done once for all, verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his sins and then for the people, since he did this once for all when Christ was on the cross of Calvary and he uttered the words, it is finished, no sacrifice for sins was left. So when Jesus goes before the Father in heaven, it's all about us. He's interceding. That's what the text says. Now he lives always, underline that word in verse 25, always he lives to make intercession for you and me. No high priest could do that, but Jesus can. That means his labor is perfect. He's able to do things. He's able to intercede in ways so you're hurting today. Jesus busies himself addressing your hurts, your pains, your struggles. When the devil comes and makes you feel dirty about your sin and makes you feel unloved and unworthy, Jesus is there whispering to his father in heaven, it's been paid for. It's done. It was taken care of. You see, Jesus is better. In his lineage, in the line of Melchizedek, in his longevity, he never dies. In his labor, instead of ministry of maintenance, he is continually interceding, speaking, being an advocate for us. That is why in verse 22 it says Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. We've got it so much better in Jesus than the people of Israel had under the law. And all of this took place because we had a different priest. Now, verse 12 says a different priest brings a different law. We're going to talk about a whole lot of this next week in chapter 8. But it brings a different law, a different covenant. So not only do we need a different priest, but now we have a different partnership, this covenant between man and God. Though we were separated because of our sin, now we've been brought into the family of God. And this one puts us closer to our Savior. The law kept you far away. In your Bibles, if you have a study Bible, somewhere in the back of your study Bible, you're gonna have a picture of the temple. And the picture of the temple is gonna show wall upon wall upon wall of separation. And the wall of separation widowed out, winnowed out, uh, people. That little by little, you got farther and farther away from God. Listen to me, the law kept God and man apart from one another. And rightly so, because sinful man cannot be in, uh, pre- in the presence of a uh, perfect God. And so there was all these walls of division. Then the Pharisees came and they created all, a whole bunch of more fences between God and man. Jesus knocked all of that down. So when we see in the Old Testament, and probably the best picture of it is Sinai, where we see Moses go before God on behalf of the people. All the people are down at the base of the mountain. Moses goes up. The only thing people can see is the lightning and thunder of, uh, of the presence of God. But only Moses got to be there. That was the old way of things. You were kept separate from God. And that was for your protection because if you were in the presence of God as a sinful individual, you were done for. And so God would pick out one and say, you're going to be the representative and I'm going to show you just a glimpse of who I am, he told Moses. I want you to know this. Because Jesus is the greatest high priest, you and I, listen very carefully, experience Mount Sinai and so much more intimacy and closeness with Almighty God than even Moses did on that fateful day. You have an intimacy with God, a closeness with God, because of Jesus Christ, even greater than the patriarchs that walked before us. Why? Because Jesus took that which was at enmity between each other and brought fellowship. And he did so through his finished work on the cross. And so what do we do with all this? I will close very quickly with two applications. We need to do two things. We need to trust his word, and we need to rest in his work. In the middle of the passage, we see verses 20 and 21. All of this happened because of an oath. God says, I've been telling you about this. For years, I was going to send one. I was going to send one who was going to be greater than any one of them before you. And I was going to send them. And look, I have fulfilled my promise. What that should do for us as Gentiles is if God was right and true and fulfilled his promise of sending Jesus, then what about all of his other promises, people? If God fulfilled that promise then surely he'll fulfill his promise of never leaving us or forsaking us, of giving us salvation and eternal hope, of giving us the life of abundance that we so desire. All of those promises that Jesus, come, that Jesus said, come all you who are weary and in me you will find rest. All of those promises that you're dealing with and struggling with in the here and now can be yours if you'll trust him. You've got to trust him. Jesus is telling us, the writer of Hebrews is telling us, I am the high priest. I am the way to God. If you're here today and have never trusted Christ as your Savior, trust him and his word because his word is true. Number two, we've got to rest in his work. We have to rest in his work. It means resting with our salvation And resting and knowing that God is interceding for us. And so as we rest in Him, the author says twice in our text, we can draw near to Him. That means we can give all of who we are to Him and He accepts us and He loves us and He gives us all we need for life and godliness. Are you trusting? Are you resting? He's the answer. There's no other answer coming. There's no other way. He's proven the old way didn't work. It was useless. Will you put your faith? Will you put your hope? Will you put your trust in Jesus, the greatest of all time? Because when you do, your problem and my problem of sin and imperfection that keep us from God will be addressed and taken care of forever.